Hello and welcome to the Barbarians at the Gate podcast. This is Jeremiah Jenny and I'm here with my co-host David Moser. How you doing, David? Pretty good. Still here in the United States. So David, today uh, we're really fortunate to have as our guest um, one of the, the, the great young writers who who's, has been writing about China now uh, for about, oh, going back about 10 years. Uh, he's written the book Wish Lanterns, which is coming out in a new edition called China's New Youth. Uh, this year, and also he's written for The Economist. He's been a, a force behind LA Review of Books, China Channel, and of course, I'm talking about Alec Ash. And so, we are really pleased to have Alec on the phone with us all the way from Dali in Yunnan. Alec, how you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on, and uh, good to see your uh, sonsi faces, Jeremiah and David. Uh, I have fled the coop of Beijing. Uh, I left last year for the southern climbs of uh, Dali in Yunnan, um, a slightly more rustic environment, but uh, I do miss the, uh, I miss the Youtiao and the company in Beijing and, uh, and that acrid taste of air pollution in the back of my throat and uh, hope to uh, come back to visit sometime. Great. So uh, we're here mainly to talk about uh, your new book, which is really not a new book, but a reissue. Why don't you sort of explain the, uh, for those of you who have already seen or read Alec's book, there's a new edition, at, but it's a little bit complicated. Can you tell us, Alec, what this new edition is? Right. So the, the book titled Wish Lanterns came out in 2016, and this is the release of the U.S. paperback, um, which has come a little bit later. And uh, they have retitled it uh, in the uh, hope that it'll drive more sales with a more newsy title, I think, uh, publisher's choice. So um, we've called it China's New Youth for this, uh, this re-release. And it's got a new preface um, by me, uh, a foreword by Caroline Can, And uh, I also wrote an afterword, which is catching everyone up on the, on the lives of the six characters whom I followed. If I may, let me just read a uh, part of the review that I wrote for your book on Amazon when it came out. Because uh, first, because I just want I just want to use it again because I don't want to waste it, and uh, also it gives the uh, the listening audience a, a you know an idea of what the book is at. Then you can catch us up on it. So I wrote back in night in 2016, I guess. Not since journalist Song Ye's Chinese Lives have we had a book that provides such a detailed and nuanced look inside the lives of ordinary Chinese people. Yet Alec Ash's attempt differs from that of Song Ye in that he does not attempt a representative cross-section of the different strata of Chinese experience, but rather delves into a specific demographic, China's post-80s generation. These youth came of age in a Chinese society that was recovering from multi-generational mass trauma and morphing into a new reality that no one could predict. Ash spins the stories of his six diverse protagonists in a swirl of cultural de detail, filling the cracks with historical context so skillfully that following these young lives enable, enables us to track the trajectory of, of reform China itself. Since the narrative follows the path of a generation still in the process of defining itself, this book brings the reader up to the realities of today's headlines and is probably one of the best books on current China out right now. It is refreshing that Ash presents these accounts without agenda or talking points, letting us see for ourselves how these young people negotiate the possibilities and constraints they are faced with finding new ways to be Chinese. So that's what I wrote, and I meant it, in 2016, but uh, 
China has moved on, and so have these young people. I know you catch up with them in your afterward, but maybe you might want to first explain your project a little bit, uh, fill us in on what's happening to these young people, and uh, how you went about, uh, and also what you think of uh, the future of the of the, this new generation. After all, you do say uh, that that in China a new generation is about every five years. Well, thank you very much for those、uh, kind words, David.、Uh, yeah, it, China. The、China does tend to move on、uh, quicker than we can keep up. So, a work of、uh, reportage or journalism, Swift feels like it becomes a record of history.、Um, so, I was writing this book five,、uh, four, five years ago, and、uh, I'm writing about the, what we might call the post Tiananmen generation, those born after 1980, as you say, the notorious Baling Ho, who have no memory of、uh, the events of. 89, which we might take as a bookmark in China's development since,、um, but really it was the, it was a sliver generation of those born between 1985 and 1990 that I was、uh, writing about, and I chose six characters who who I saw as a sort of cross section of that generation to follow their lives in this、uh, very narrative way.、Uh, I'm not even in the book myself; it just tells their stories from childhood to.、Uh, Early thirties,、um, <clears throat> so we, we might call those. Indeed, I do call those that generation the wedge generation because I I see them as wedged between old and new China in its modern iteration, and and also the generation which I saw as opening it up, opening China up a little bit, the thin end of the wedge that is between、uh, a, a sort of older way of doing things and China very much as part of a, of the international order, as you say.、Uh, Generation gaps come thick and fast in China. There's a saying "sanyangudaigo," or、uh, or three years for a generation gap, <clears throat> or some people have it as five years a generation gap. So, for those born in '85、uh, um, and those born in 1990, that's already very different contexts in which they're growing up. And of course, we are shaped by our environments. And then the the the, the youth today, those born after '95, after 2000, the the Lingling Ho,、um, they're a completely new breed. So I I should sort of issue the caveat that I'm familiar with those of of my generation. I was born in 1986,、um, and then the you know the latest wave of Chinese youth, the Lingling Ho.、Um, you know, I keep an eye on them,、uh, and I think they are very different,、um, much more comfortable. I think in、um, with China being strong、uh, in the world and、uh, an international power,、uh, also slightly more nationalistic, I would say. China continues to change and、uh, elude a sort of static、um, uh, kind of representation of it in book form.、Um, as for the characters themselves, the six I was focusing on, and in the in the back of this. Uh, released edition, this new edition. I have an afterword where I catch everyone up、uh, on their lives. It's it's yeah, it's a mix. They're doing well. I think. Let's see. I'll just tell you about one of them. The most because、uh, uh, I've been watching him on TV.、Uh, Lucifer was one of the characters I wrote about. That's his English name, of course.、Uh, Li Yan, who was an aspiring superstar, and he's recently had another 15 minutes of fame. Because he's been appearing on the TV show、uh, "Yue Dui De Xia Tian,"、uh, the Summer of Bands, which is a singing contest、um, uh, streamed on iQiyi, the、uh, streaming video website, every、uh, every week.、Uh, it's a very fun program. It's become a staple of my 
Saturday night, and uh, Lucifer or Li Yen uh, appeared on it uh, briefly in the early episodes, uh, and uh, somewhat unfortunately became some, some something of a national laughing stock actually, because he he did he bombed slightly, uh, and uh, the hosts made a little bit of fun of a. Uh, phase he's been in recently uh, after the book where he uh, went to California and tried to reinvent himself as a, a sort of gangster rapper um, called Little Yen um, sort of borrowing wads of cash from friends to pretend that he had, had lots of money and uh, uh, so that uh, foray into TV uh, unfortunately didn't work for him this time around uh, but he is still undeterred and um, I think broadly for all of the six that I wrote about, um, there's been various compromises on their dreams, um, but they still have that kind of sense of forwards movement um, and a sort of belief that they can transform their lives, which uh, I, I saw as particular to this generation in, in China when I first came here in 2008. Well, maybe I could ask a, a question because this is something I did want to ask. I remember reading your book uh, uh, back when it came out that I had the feeling that all the protagonists had, uh, in the end, had to compromise their dreams in one way or another. That seemed to be something they all had in common. And you, you Don't we all, David? Uh, yes, I, <laughs> indeed. Um, but uh, you, you mentioned the example of Lucifer as, you know, this is obviously, he's still struggling a little bit to find his identity. Can you just sum up, uh, in terms of the others, uh, is there sort of a, a similar kind of struggle as they move forward? And has China's advancement geopolitically and economically had any effect on their, you know, the, the trajectory of their careers? It's a good question, and I think it gets to the heart of um, a sort of, tangential question of, you know, what is the China dream? Because that's the slogan, right, which is defining the Xi era. Um, and uh, it's defined, I think, by Xi Jinping as a national dream. You know, China as a nation becomes stronger, richer, more powerful, more assertive on the world stage. Uh, but, but we think of it from the perspective or the analogy of the American dream, which is individual dreams coming true. And if you work hard, you can make it. And whether that's um, bullshit or not is another question. But uh, in China, I, following these young people as they try to make it, it, it did at a certain point become apparent that even as the, the nation becomes uh, stronger for people of this generation, in many ways I felt that the pie had already been divided up uh, in, the, in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, and it just became very difficult for them to break out of... I suppose a sociologist would call it their socioeconomic bracket. Um, and, uh, you know, Guanxi and what uh, connections you have is still all important. Um, and so really they have, they have it tough. You know, they, there's a, they have a lot of pressure on them. It's a generation with an enormous amount of uh, competition for uh, limited resources in terms of uh, jobs and success and money. <clears throat> And I think uh, all of them came up against a, a brick wall to a certain extent, um, despite this, uh, I think, sort of rather unfair stereotype uh, cast upon them by the older generations in China that they're little emperors, Xiao Huangdi, and they're spoilt and uh, materialistic. Uh, I, I think they don't have it easy, as indeed the millennial generation doesn't uh, anywhere in the world. Um, but they're a very unique generation. They're the first uh, single child generation um, to have the sort of attentions but also pressure 
of uh, two parents and four grandparents uh, on on their backs. They're the first generation to grow up in uh, China as a free market nation. They're the first internet generation and the first generation really exposed to foreign culture from birth. Um, uh, and in that respect, they're very different from their parents. I think that uh, individuality is a defining feature for young China, as opposed to um, what we might call conformity, certainly in the in the Mao years. Um, and uh, they're a very polarized generation with huge differences between um, the, the uber-rich, uh, Fuardai, second-rich generation, to the uh, what uh, the self-dubbed Diaozi, the penis hairs. You mentioned this a little bit in uh, in your your postscript, um, but I'm kind of curious because you're writing specific. You're, as you mentioned, you're writing about the Chinese equivalent of your generation. You're writing about the China China's millennials, and the new edition of the book, as it's being published in the U.S., is China's New Youth. And I was thinking about the original title, or the title at least as it was published in the U.K., which was Wish Lanterns which has a, a really wonderful payoff in the last few paragraphs uh, of the book. And I was wondering if you, if there was any, what, what the conversation was like when people were throwing around titles for this, the new edition that's being published in the U.S., and whether or not, when we say new youth, um, are, what are we really talking about here? Because we're not, we're not talking about, you know, the, the, the people in China who are 20, 21 years old today. We're talking about people who are 20, 21 years old back in 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, when it was, I mean, I know it's a cliche, but no less true. Yeah, I mean, but it was a, a very different place. Now I'm wondering, uh, yeah, walk us through that a little bit. Absolutely. So, I mean, firstly, you mentioned that uh, the book is about China's millennials, and I feel it would be remiss of me not to plug my friend Eric Fish's book, which is called China's Millennials, which is a, uh, an excellent and very thorough study of the generation uh, as it was um, um, sort of six, seven, eight years ago. Um, and there's a couple of other books. There's one called Young China as well. So there's various uh, studies out there of the generation, and I hope that there will be new ones focusing on the Jiu Ling Ho and the Ling Ling Ho, these new generations. Um, the, I was writing about people my age because when I first came to China, those were the people I was hanging out with and I was interested in. Um, and actually, New Youth was an original working title of the book, which we, um, we went with Wish Lanterns in the end because the book's quite uh, literary, it's quite narrative. It's not really a China sort of journalist's book, which is... Uh, looking to give a comprehensive overview of the, of the generation as a sort of study. It's, um, it's six people's stories um, and Wish Lanterns uh, hit some of the themes of the book, the aspirational themes of these people's lives um, and felt more symbolic. So New Youth actually is a reference to, it's a historical reference to the title of a magazine launched in 1915 by Chen Duxiu who was the, actually the founder of the Chinese Communist Party later um, and uh, dean of Peking University, where uh, I learned Chinese and where David used to teach. And uh, back in the days of the early Chinese Republic, he launched this magazine 
uh, calling to the youth of China to transform the nation um, and you know, lift it up out of uh, its uh, dynastial history and, and create a new nation. And uh, I think it's no coincidence that he titled the magazine uh, New Youth, while it, it originally the so uh, originally the English title or French title was La Jeunesse uh, or Qingyan, so it was just youth, and then they added the Xin later. Um, so Xin Qingyan Zhajir, New Youth Magazine, uh, and uh, the New Youth became a call of the May 4th generation, and uh, I wanted to draw that, slightly connect that thread between China's past and its present. Well, it's interesting you bring up that generation, too, because when I think of the new culture era and the, the era in which the New Youth magazine was being published and the era in which Chen Duxiu and others were working at Peking University, part of what I think about that era is the intellectual dynamism of that era. And I mean, it, it was dynamism under pressure. I mean, think about that generation, too, Alec. The, the students who were coming of age in the 19-teens you know, right after the failure of the Republic, you know, between 19, you can make an argument that between, say, 1916 and 1926, China fit most of the definitions of what we would call today a failed state. And if you're, I mean, you have a government of sorts that has very little power, the country is divided up among warlords and militarists and foreign powers. And I, you know, I, one of the takeaways I get when I read documents from that period, it's just the sheer sense of, not just purpose, but of peril. This idea that, you know, we might be the last generation of Chinese, and not in a hyperbolic way, but looking around the world at what had happened to other older civilizations under similar pressure and seeing them carved up or wiped off the map. And the, the sense of peril, the sense of predicament, really pushed that generation into exploring so many different ideas. You know, it was like, what have you got? Socialism, anarchism, liberalism, utopianism. You have something that's going to work. You know, we've been trying what we tried for 5,000 years. That clearly didn't work. What have you got? Give it to me. I wonder how that kind of compares to, you know, today. Even with all of the controls on information and the Internet, China's new youth today have access to information and ideas that would have blown the minds of their predecessors a hundred years ago, and yet with a very different outlook among China's young people today. Is it because we're in a very a very different situation? China's a powerful country back then; it wasn't a powerful country. Yeah, that's a very interesting framing of the comparison. A hundred years apart, right? We just had the hundred-year anniversary of May Fourth Movement last year, um, and as you say, at that time. Uh, China was weak, it was a fledgling republic, uh, it was about to go into the warlord uh, era, and um, the, the new youth, or the then new youth of China, um, as, as Chen Duxiu kind of called to it in this essay, um, uh, titled uh, Jing, Jing Gao Qingyan, like a, a respectful warning or a respectful call to youth, was that we had to cast off all of that old stuff uh, and sort of recast and reform China. Um, so that's an interesting comment because, as you say, now China has made it. You know, it's 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 really achieved many of the goals of what the founding fathers wanted. It is strong. It is respected on the world stage. It is rich. Um, so the generation of young people now uh, are inheriting, you know, the country 
that uh, that their forefathers back in the day wanted to create, uh, which perhaps means that there isn't that sense of uh, urgency. Um, another another interesting sort of comment that you were, uh, I think, making there is that when back in the day, a hundred years ago, when they were looking for how they were going to uh, rejuvenate China, they were really looking to the West, like that that uh, litany of. Uh, isms that you recited, most of them came from from Western ideas, and there was this, uh, you know, as as you know, a legacy of uh, you know T. Yong and uh, taking ideas from the West and applying them to China, and uh, Marxism was one of them. Uh, and Chen Jixiu went on to found the Chinese Communist Party. Whereas today, a hundred years later, uh, these ideas are not so fresh anymore. Um, China has had a hundred years to grapple with ideas from the West and see what might work and what might not work. And the generation of young people uh, know all of this stuff because they learn it. They study it. They study Western political ideas in university. Um, and I think what, what I've observed, especially actually with the generation after the one I wrote about the young people today, is that there's a lot more suspicion about that stuff, a lot less sort of blind uh, Western worship is is was sometimes the accusation leveled against generation now i think they're more suspicious of western ideas and want to assert more of more chineseness aside from fred one of your characters in the book who was a a, a guanardai daughter of party officials there there wasn't as i recall much overt political consciousness there i mean they uh they sort of eschewed politics as something that was not a, a productive domain for them. They're not not a way to make money. They weren't allowed to do much in it. They, and they weren't really interested in even going there talking about politics. With do you think with this with the China's new strength that in that aside from just a kind of a as you say uh, now a suspicion or a sort of a, a loss of awe and respect for the Western culture uh, that aside from a kind of a, a nationalistic attitude that, that that partly because of what Jeremiah was talking about there's there's no sense of urgency to save the nation in any sense that that that's that young people of your generation but also of the younger are sort of tuned out of politics they're not very politically uh, interested or engaged does that strike you as accurate well yes and no I think that uh, as, as you say in my book only one of the characters was really politically engaged and that was a conscious decision because I thought well I want to write something representative of what uh, young China actually feels like uh, I think sort of uh, Western journalism naturally tends to focus on politics but uh, you know, when you live here I was thinking how many young people do you talk to actually care about it and I thought well maybe one in six is about accurate um, and most, so most of them felt slightly divorced from that but I think that the fact that they don't engage with national level politics doesn't mean that they're not political because the personal famously is political and I, I did notice in the generation more of a willingness to um, be become activists for, for their own lives or for certain causes that they cared about whether it's uh, you know, feminism or um, anything else um, which I didn't believe was so common for generations before them. Um, so I, I, I think that it would be unfair to say that they're not political, but um, fair perhaps to say that they're not so engaged in the sort of uh, national level policy making and in the way that American citizens follow it and everything. 
now I I see the sort of rising patriotism uh, very much as you know a form of of political engagement, and uh, in many ways that is a uh, continuation of the legacy of, of of the May Fourth movement, which was a very nationalistic movement. It's it's you know May Fourth has been used by every uh, you know generation in China, appropriated to, as this sort of great patriotic uprising but it was it was really began as anti-japanese uh boycotts and uh violence and uh you know that reminds me in many ways of the, of the youth today uh when they criticize uh, foreign nations yeah i think that's an important moment to talk about because we talk about the new culture era that era leading up in the 19 teens of this kind of openness and dynamism but then, of course, in 1919, we have the May 4th demonstrations that were specifically in response to what was going on in Paris at the Paris Peace Conferences at the end of World War One. China was nominally on the side of the Allies and contributed many labor, you know, thousands of laborers to the effort in Europe, many of whom died and did not come home. So they wanted a seat at the table. And, you know, the delegation from China arrives in Paris and proceeds to get royally screwed with their pants on by the West and by some of their own leaders. And of course, that activates what you're talking about there, a kind of rising sense of nationalism in this generation back in the 19-teens. But I also wonder, too, you know, is this a, a moment when almost a break when people or the students of that era were thinking, all right, well, it's great that we're talking about, you know, women's rights and we're great. We're talking about free love and it's great. We're talking about utopian socialism. But if we're not a strong country, it doesn't matter that somehow after 1919, the narrative of national strength starts playing an important role. And so you have Marxism and then Bolshevism, the, the left starting to look at the Soviet Union as a model of not just revolution, but also national strength because of the propaganda that was coming out of the Soviet Union and other wings of Chinese politics that start looking at, you know, models in Europe of party states and even, you know, flirtations with fascism. Yeah, I think that you're right that there was a sense of China being uh, beleaguered, being set upon by nations, and of course, the uh, unfair treatment of China. The Treaty of Versailles was the uh, catalyst to the May Fourth Movement in 1919, and we might draw a parallel between that, uh, while noting the differences a century later, between that and then today, where there is also, I think, a sense of China being beleaguered from abroad and set upon by uh, you know, Trump uh, cancelling uh, TikTok and WeChat uh, downloads uh, on the day that we're recording this podcast and uh, various criticisms of China in, uh, in uh, international media. And so, so we, we might point to that similarity, a sense of being um, set upon from outside. Uh, of course, the big difference is that 100 years ago, uh, not only was China weak, but the protests were against the government, uh, who they perceived as being too weak in the face of Versailles, and they went to these government officials and, and beat them up and burnt down someone's home. Um, uh, today, I think the uh, nationalism is more broadly in support for their nation, uh, and I think there are various sort of factors as to why that is, which we could uh, we could look at. 
Well, I think the appropriation of that legacy to the idea that the Communist Party was the one force that was able to redeem China from that century of humiliation and that idea of redemption, fall and redemption being repeated and in an echo chamber of education, information, the media. Well, that's the great irony, isn't it? The great sort of paradox that the May 4th generation um, was the generation which out of the ashes of which the Chinese Communist Party was created as a, as a way to make China strong again. And uh, then you know, the wheel kind of came full circle through protests against it in 89 and before back around to supporting it. It is interesting if you look at the May 4th Museum that's in the original administration building of Peking, or one of the older administration buildings of Peking University, back near its original campus, which is downtown near the Forbidden City. There's a museum of the May 4th and New Culture era that's been there for a while now. Originally, it was very much focused on the New Culture era, New Youth Magazine, all these dynamic individuals, Chen Duxiu, Hu Shi, you know, Li Dajiao, and it underwent a major facelift last year. It is now almost completely a uh, teleological march of the inevitability of socialism and Marxism emerging from the new culture era. And what's interesting is that almost any other possibility has been pretty much pushed aside in favor of this, you know, red march to the future. You know, there was a there was an obsession with with uh, foreign ideas and uh, interjecting foreign influences to to save China, you know, uh, in the in, during the May Fourth Movement, and the notice of the the notion of Tiyong, which was from the self strengthening movement of trying to keep an essence of Chineseness while importing foreign technology and and science uh, to to you know raise the standards of living and so on. It seems like uh, right now, context this Jeremiah, Jeremiah and I both are right now involved in projects with the universities in in Beijing to provide Chinese undergraduate students that normally would be in the U.S. studying at a a university there but can't go, uh, to provide them with a Western-style or some simulacrum of a Western-style education in Beijing until they're able to to go there and actually begin their study in classrooms in the United States. So interestingly, uh, China, you know, is is now more assertive and, and is certainly more proud of itself, justifiably so. There's still a huge interest in the West. And there's still a great desire on the part of young people to go there and to learn, you know, to be in that environment and learn about Western things. But it, in, in this case, it's not a matter of cultural survival. This is just a matter of wanting to be engaged, be feeling already engaged in the world of ideas and the memes and the, the Internet and so forth and wanting to be a part of that. What is your sense of the of young people now? What, how do they see engagement with the West and what do they think of their role in, in that? Well, you know, what is Chinese culture? There was, because there was a big uh, break in Chinese culture in the 1950s and 60s, or really ever since 1911. So this idea that uh, now we can come back after this, you know, enormous hiatus and uh, as the CCP wants to sort of reclaim Chinese culture uh, and this sort of continuous thread from Confucius uh, seems sort of risible to me because, you know, uh, on the streets, obviously, young people are more interested in, uh, you know, iPads than the I Ching. I do think that, um, and I've I've been saying this for a while, even though I, I feel it's an unpopular thing to say, while we've been talking about this very real nationalism uh, uptick, 
Uh, I continue to think that young Chinese are more socially liberal and uh, open than generations before them. And, and I think that that's just a very obvious and self-evident thing to say for anyone who's spent more than 10 minutes with a young Chinese person. And of course, for the you know, frothing of the mouth nationalists, but uh, I'd say that those are more of a minority and, and even the ones who are very assertive uh, and defensive um, of China's reputation, uh, I tend to find that they have more in common with uh, my generation and young generations in the West in terms of uh, the TV shows they watch, how, how uh, sort of uh, tolerant they are of, say, LGBT or feminism and sort of more traditionally socially liberal ideas, more in common with uh, other generations around the world of their age than they do with the generation before them. So I, I think it's an important to remind a reminder, and I'll keep saying it despite it being unpopular, that that itself ha is going to have a transformative effect on China as these more, I think, socially liberal generation clued into the rest of the world uh, kind of grow up uh, and uh, come to form their nation. I mean, whether that transforms into any political opening up, I'm a lot less optimistic because I think it gets filtered out in the uh, the great coffee filter of the CCP, which sort of takes, you know, if you join it, I think it takes any social liberalism right out of you. And uh, I do worry that with this uh, political regression that we've seen over the last five years, that, that actually, you know, it might not be the case because now um, the education system and such is, is really, I think, raising a generation which is maybe less receptive to the outside world uh, than the one that I was writing about. And to, to, be, to be frank, the West isn't helping. Uh, Trump isn't helping the conversation, this Cold War conversation. Uh, which I think often demonizes China without separating it, the people from the party. I think that isn't helping and is really feeding into uh, China's kind of closing closing down now. So I, so I do worry about it. But I think that broadly we must remember that the generation is a lot more open than, than their predecessors. You expressed a, a wish that, you know, that there will be a, a new generation of writers that will write about the new generations emerging in China, just as you did with your cohort. But I wonder, is it harder to write about China now? I mean, than it was when you were writing this book. I, 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 I thinking and I, for those of you who haven't read it, we'll put a link to it on our Web page. But if, if you if you get a chance um, just recently, uh, Peter Hessler, who wrote uh, the book Rivertown, which in some ways was sort of the prototype for almost every I came to China, I taught English, I hung out in the cafe, these are the people I met not, uh, book afterwards, um, has retur returned to China this year and published a piece in The New Yorker, which then inspired uh, the Australian historian Jeremy, Bar Jeremy Barmay to uh, write a response that uh, was somewhere between a, a, a critical analysis and a drive-by shooting. And so I was wondering if, you know, with everything being so polarized now, is it possible? I mean, will there be, is there somebody who's 25 years old hanging out in Dali or in Beijing or in Hangzhou who's gonna write this book? And if so, is the reception going to be, wow, that's cool, China has young people too, and they're into stuff that I'm into, or will it be, how can you possibly write this book about China's young people and not once mention, 
you know, ask them about their opinions of what's happening in, say, Xinjiang? Well, to just uh, take that last point very quickly, I think uh, everyone writing about China has a moral responsibility not to gloss over what's happening in Xinjiang and, and various other uh, abuses. So to write a sort of Panglossian book um, or, or, or article about China, I, I, I think is, you know, uh, you know, almost immoral to neglect that, but, but you have to get the balance. Um, so to be specific, I, I hope that the next generation writing books about young Chinese are going to be young Chinese. Um, uh, partly because it's more difficult for foreigners to get into China now, and I, I do see uh, less of them than uh, kind of my generation who came around the Olympics when China felt like it was opening up. Um, but now you have uh, you know, this whole generation of young Chinese with you know, great English um, really clued in, and there are fantastic writers like Caroline Can and Yang Yang Cheng writing from the US. So, you know, more of that, please. So I can only hope that, 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 that those voices will uh, continue to filter to the top because at the same time, the environment uh, for, I mean, Yang Yang's writing from the US, so that's fine, but the environment for people to be in China and, uh, you know, ask sensitive questions. Uh, as, as you've noted on this podcast, uh, the barbarians are a little le- less welcome here. Do you think this poses a risk uh, for China in, in this sense that, uh, like uh, many countries, I mean, it's sort of like James Joyce has to get out of Ireland in order to write, you know, about Ireland. Young Chinese writers are going to have to get out of China in order to write significant books about the, the, the country. Uh, I think you can do very good work from outside, but uh, China's changed so much in, in the 10 years that I've been here that uh, put your finger to the air, I think, is very valuable. So it might be interesting, seeing as we've been talking about uh, whether we can connect this historical thread to the current generation of youth, to think about what are the similarities as well as all of the differences. So we mentioned the early generations of the May 4th protesters, their nationalism, um, the Red Guards, Mao's Red Guards, I see as very much in the same tradition of iconoclasm and sort of anti-feudal traditions to try and reshape China. And then after that, it, it turned sort of against the party uh, with the, the so-called Beijing Spring of 1978, the Democracy Wall, Wei Jingsheng's fifth modernization, uh, who himself, he, Wei Jingsheng, was 28. Um, and then, of course, famously, as uh, David has witnessed, the student protests in the 80s, not just in 89, but in 86, they had them. In 87, they had them. Uh, And the students in 89 famously had a May 4th manifesto um, calling for greater personal freedoms and reform of the the, the very party which their May 4th ancestors had helped to set up. So taking that forwards another 30 years to today, where there really is no appetite to protest anymore and there's general support for the nation. You know, they they seem very different today, but I think that there's a continuation of a legacy in three areas. The the first, as we noted, is nationalism, which was a very key part of all of these student protests before. I think the West casts uh, um, 
student protesters in the in the light of their own image, sort of democracy activists. But I think a lot of them really was just nationalistic, just sort of pat, just patriots. They were patriots, and that patriotism, that nationalism, is very much still alive today. And as has been widely noted, could could turn on a dime uh, if the if the party doesn't seem to accord with their values. Um, the second area is is sort of geographic, and it's on the fringes. You know, it's it's in Taiwan, and it's very obviously in Hong Kong, where the legacy, not just of Chinese culture and uh, traditional characters and all the rest of it has been preserved, but the legacy of youth protest, uh, the Sunflower Movement in Taiwan, and uh, everything that's been happening in Hong Kong comes right out of uh, both June 4th and May 4th, I think. Uh, but but that's on the fringes in in the mainland. I think the third area where I think there's some uh, continuity is in uh, what I might broadly term activism, which is that I did see people of my generation and young people and younger people today uh, much more willing to take a stand for issues that they believe in. Uh, and uh, you know, a lot of my friends in Beijing, of course, perhaps not representative of the populace at large, but a lot of them were setting up uh, NGOs for women's rights uh, or uh, their, or environmental activism is very popular today. And I think that's a, that's a form of uh, being political, being you know, willing to and working to better your nation. Uh, ironically, uh, one of the aspects of activism has been Marxism, where students at uh, Beida, at uh, Peking University, had a Marxist society trying to help workers unionize in Shenzhen, and uh, and they got arrested for it. So you know that's the the most painful irony of all. So we 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 could point to the lack of continuity and the differences, but I think there are some uh, important things which which remain the same as well. Well, thank you, Alec. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us, and uh, the new edition. Of the book is China's New Youth, How the Young Generation is Shaping China's Future. Uh, do you know when it's, going to, when it's uh, due to be released or has it been released yet in the U.S.? It's out now. Get it on Kindle, guys. Okay, so uh, check it out on Amazon. Uh, thank you, Alec. Dave, any last thoughts before we wrap it up today? No, wish me luck. I've got to get on a plane, go through quarantine, and hopefully emerge on the other side like like a like a butterfly emerging from the chrysalis, ready to fly over to you to your house and do podcasts there. Right. So finally, after a year of doing podcasts, we'll actually do them the same in the room. same room. Well, thank you all, everyone, for joining us on Barbarians at the Gate. It's available on iTunes and wherever else you can find podcasts. And uh, once again, a very special thank you to Alec uh, Ash for joining us today. Thank you, Alec. Thank you.